This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast designed to help equip Christians to be able to defend their faith and be confident in their faith. I'm your host, Robbie Lashwa, and I'm here with my awesome co-host, Tyler Hurley. Thanks, Robbie. Yeah, we're super excited. Got a very special guest on our podcast today, and we're super excited. We're going to be digging in deep on biblical archaeology and just continuing on that idea of New Testament reliability. Yeah, digging in deep. Digging like in deep. That. Yeah, that, that was in intentional, <laughs> so I'm glad you caught that. There yeah, we go. I like that. So we're going to get into archaeology today, and we have with us uh, an amazing guest, Dr. Titus Kennedy is with us today. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He holds a doctorate in biblical archaeology from the University of South Africa. In addition to that, he's a research fellow with the Discovery Institute that is doing remarkable stuff on intelligent design. He's currently a professor at Biola University, and he is a bona fide archaeologist. He's participated and led in many archaeological excavations and surveys. So, Dr. Titus Kennedy, thanks so much for being with us today on Christ, Culture, and Coffee. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we always start off our show with a coffee tip. We talk about different kinds of yes. beans or how to make different kinds of coffee, what you should look for in a good roast. And um, we always ask our guests a little bit about coffee when they come on. So yeah, Tyler. yeah, absolutely. So Titus, can you let us know what type of coffee do you like? Do you like coffee? That's the first question. And if so, what is your favorite cup of coffee that you've had? I do love coffee and I actually like different types of coffee. My kind of go-to drink would usually be a flat white, but okay. the best coffee I've ever had was in central Costa Rica at this place. I think it was called Cafeteria Privilegios and it, it rated one of the top 10 coffees in the world, supposedly. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Had it, you know, normally I put a little bit of milk in my coffee but this coffee was so smooth, I could just drink it straight and it was perfect. Wow, that's, awesome, that's great. <laughs> that sounds really good. Well, that makes sense. You've been all over the place. So of course you would get to try around a few different things, I'm yeah. sure. So that that's awesome. That's If I ever go there one day, I'd love to try some. <laughs> yeah, and if any of our listeners are ever in Costa Rica, check it out <laughs> next time you're over there. That's awesome. That's cool. Well, hey, um, we are about apologetics here on our show, and um, apologetics, as you know, is interdisciplinary, right? We're taking science and philosophy and archaeology and uh, the manuscript evidence and textual criticism and theology and anything, really, and trying to make a defense for the Christian faith. And so archaeology is a really great piece of that when it comes to scripture, when it comes to if what God says is true. And so before we start off getting into all the awesome details and, and finds that have, have been made, um, Titus, what can archaeology do to help us with apologetics? I actually view archaeology as one of the linchpins of apologetics because of the powerful case it can make for the historical reliability of the Bible. Mm -hmm. All of these hard facts, I mean, actual objects that we're looking at, cities, buildings, attesting to people, places, events. So we, if we look at historical evidence, well, where does that stuff come from? I mean, it's sourced from archaeology. So archaeology is very powerful in terms of establishing historical reliability. Okay. Well, now, I've, I've heard some people, you know, tote archaeology as like the end all in, therefore, the Bible is true. Oh, right. Um, so when it comes to archaeology, what can't it do for us in apologetics? What are some, some dangers to where, hey, we don't want to go that far because it doesn't really say all of that? 
Well, archaeology can't prove that miracles happened. Okay. Can't really prove the supernatural. It can demonstrate that things recorded in the historical narrative are consistent or accurate. But of course, we can't reproduce a miracle. And we can't, uh, from archaeology, pull things that go beyond the historical record, go before historical records, before archaeological artifacts. Okay, okay. That, that helps out a lot, right, with a lot of things. So, well, let's get into some of the finds you've made. Um, first of all, got, your book came out like a month and a half ago-ish, beginning yep. of June. Man, right. I, I love it. I've read it. I've reread parts. I sat my wife down and made her listen <laughs> to a lot of it. Um, it is phenomenal, and we're definitely going to be plugging it um, and, and, and telling our listeners where they can get it. But you're an expert on um, the conquest of Canaan, right? That's kind of your area of expertise. And yeah, so that period, that's, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, the, that period we call the Late Bronze Age in archaeology, which... We're looking in terms of biblical material that's essentially exodus into the judges period so yeah that's one of my main areas okay and and that's what we want to talk about today because there is um some fascinating stuff surrounding the dating of the exodus and around the conquest of canaan in the in the late bronze age and so um when it comes to determining the exodus in scripture how do we go about um finding when it was supposed to take place how do we even go about finding the date to when it was supposed to have happened well the passage in scripture that many people are aware of and that we'd go through for our primary piece of chronology is first kings six when it talks about how the exodus was in the 480th year before solomon started building the temple Okay. And because we know when Solomon's reign was, and this is something that's pretty much universally agreed upon by scholars of ancient history and archaeology, we know that Solomon began his reign in about 970 BC. Okay. So we go into his fourth year, and then we go back from there to the 480th year before that, we get about 1446 BC. Okay. But there's actually a, a second reference that we can look at to kind of double check ourselves. And that is in Judges 11.26, which is in the time of Jephthah in around 1100 BC. It talks about the Israelites in 300 years at that point. So we add 300 years to about 1100 BC. We get 1400 for the entrance into Canaan. And then we add on the approximate 40 years of wilderness wandering. And again, that puts us into the 1440s BC for the Exodus. So we got kind of a secondary okay. check there. Hmm. That's pretty great. So 1446 is kind of a general year that that we think based on if the Bible's true and what it's what it's saying about dates. And I mean, I believe it is, but that's that's how we find it. So yep. I, I've I've heard other arguments, and um, I'm sure you're aware on Disney Plus. There's like these National Geographic right. <laughs> archaeological <laughs> things uh, about the crossing of the Red Sea and the Exodus, and they all date it way later than that. Why do so many archaeologists or historians disagree with the 1446 date? So these days, most archaeologists and historians are actually going to tell you that the Exodus did not occur. It's, it's not historical. There, there is no Exodus date because it didn't happen. But if you're looking at, oh, maybe it happened, or you're, you're looking at some scholars who say, 
there's some kind of exodus, and then they place it in the 13th century BC. The reason that they do that is kind of a, a convoluted story, but it goes back to archaeology in the early 20th century when a archaeologist named William Albright kind of regained the conquest to 13th century BC based on a destruction layer that he found at a site he was excavating. Okay. And, and so he kind of recalibrated things. And that combined with the mention of the name Ramses in Exodus and associating that with Ramses II, that kind of made this popular 13th century theory. Okay. But okay. it's really it's really not accepted much today because most people are just saying Exodus and conquest didn't happen. And for those who are saying there is solid archaeological evidence and most of those people today are actually going with the 1446-ish date. Okay, interesting. But I, just, I saw the animated movie, The Prince of Egypt, right? and they said it was Ramses, man. So you're telling me that that's right. wrong, but that's not the right time. Yeah, it's not, unfortunately. <laughs> that is a pretty good movie. It was a good movie. Yeah, I liked it. Sandra Bullock, I think, did some of the vocals and stuff. Anyway. Yeah, that's right. All right, well, moving on. So if we take the Bible seriously, literally, um, do we find some archaeology that helps back up the story from the Exodus, the conquest of Canaan? If there weren't even Hebrews in Egypt at the time, what are some of the, the evidences we have for the Exodus being around 1446? Yeah, absolutely. Do we have about four hours to? Yeah, I wish, that? right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, we wanted to get your book, right? That's the key. Yes. Yeah, get the book. Yeah. And you have that. Yeah, there's there's a chapter, actually two chapters on that. So let's just look at sort of the highlights of that. Uh, one of the most important things for establishing that Israelites or Hebrews lived in Egypt before the Exodus, and that some of them were servants comes from this papyrus Brooklyn, and that dates to around the 17th century BC. It's kind of a murky time in Egyptian history, so it's hard to give completely precise dates, but we know it's in a pre-Exodus period. It's pre-Moses. It's probably right around the time of Joseph or just after his life, and it's this list of servants from southern Egypt. And it shows uh, that we have left 95 names, 30 of them are Semitic, so Hebrew belongs to the larger language family of Semitic languages. And nine of these names are identified as Hebrew, biblical Hebrew names. Most of them are, are female because they're talking about household servants. And most, most of the time the household servants were female and then they had the, the men working out in the fields or on construction. But this is really important in showing that there are people with Hebrew names, biblical Hebrew names, living in Egypt prior to the Exodus. So that, that's one thing I'd point out. That, that's huge. Because, yeah, if they weren't living there prior to the Exodus, they can't Exodus. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And that's the book. It's called the book Brooklyn Papyri or the Papyrus Brooklyn. Yeah, Papyrus Brooklyn. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So we you can establish there are Hebrews in Egypt prior to 1446. Exactly, yep. And there's a lot of archeological, sort of what we'd call material evidence, that is things like pottery and weapons and tools and uh, sheet bones and so forth that are found in the Nile Delta region that 
that we know are from Canaan or people who migrated from Canaan. So that fits in a general sense, right? Okay, okay. then we've got the Hebrew names, okay? And then if we go to the Exodus period itself, the, the probable Exodus Pharaoh is a very interesting character. This, this I think, is Amenhotep II. And his, his chronology fits, right? The guy who's Pharaoh before him, his father, Thutmose III, ruled for 54 years. And if we look at the Bible account, it says Moses killed that Egyptian, fled to the wilderness, and then 40 years later, he's informed that Pharaoh died, so it's safe for him to go back. So that tells us this pre-Exodus Pharaoh ruled for at least 40 years. And that really narrows it down and basically tells us, oh, that had to be Thutmose III in this whole general time period. Okay. That's another really major thing. Uh, Amenhotep II is also viewed as one of the most arrogant, braggadocious <laughs> eras of the whole period. Uh, it's it's actually hilarious, some of the stuff he says. Like, he could shoot arrows through a bronze target, a palm thick. What? And he could row a, a ship faster than a whole crew of sailors by himself. And Come on. You know, he just talks about how all these kings bow down and give him tribute. He, he clearly had some issues. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's interesting. Well, and then in your book, you talk about the elephantine stele. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, cause that is, that's fascinating. What, what uh, Amenhotep II tries to say he did. Right. Right. So there's actually four different steles or, or stele that uh, Amenhotep II that we have of his that connect that whole thing of him campaigning in the slaves. Okay. So elephantine one is very well preserved in the documents, one of his campaigns to Canaan. And then on another steely, the Memphis steely, he actually gives these precise figures about this slave raid. And he says that he goes into Canaan and takes back over 101,000 slaves. Now, this is something that occurs right after the Exodus. Okay. And, and you think in your mind, like, huh, this is interesting. He makes an outlandish claim about the number of slaves that he brings back from Canaan right after the Exodus. And it's not even a military incursion, military campaign. So what is he doing? Is he trying to recoup the losses from the Exodus? Or is he trying to save face and tell his people that, oh, actually, I got those guys back, or I got some new slaves that were yeah. better? Yeah, it seems it's like he's to compensate for something. Exactly. Huh. So, so what do you think he's doing? I, I think that he is making a claim to show himself as in control and like, oh, we let these guys go because they were bad slaves and now I'm going to go and I'm going to get some, some new slave labor to replace them. But I don't, I don't think that he brought back anywhere near that amount. In fact, Egyptologists are pretty much in agreement that he's just making up that number. Okay, uh, yeah. All the other slave raids in the Canaan are tiny, tiny numbers. They're like a few thousand at the most that oh, they wow. bring back. And then he's like, over a hundred thousand? Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Come on, man. You're overcompensating for something. 
Yeah, so, so a minute of the second is, you believe, the pharaoh during the time of the Exodus, right? right. And right. it fits the chronology because um, it would be his, what, grandma? Well, step-grandma was Hatshepsut. Is that how you say it? How do you say that name? Hatshepsut, yes. Hatshepsut. And she is who people believe that was Moses's adopted mom. She's Pharaoh's daughter who adopted right. Moses. So even like the chronology of the Pharaohs in the 18th dynasty, it fits with, with the time period the Bible gives us. It does, it does. And the Pharaoh that comes after Amenhotep II, who's Thutmose IV, this also factors into the whole Exodus, Exodus Pharaoh argument. Okay. Because he has this stele called the Sphinx Dream Stele that was discovered in between the paws of the Sphinx. And, and in this, he tells this elaborate story. He's out hunting one day and he goes and takes a nap by the Sphinx and the God of the Sphinx comes to him and gives him this, this divine dream and blessing essentially that he's going to become the next Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. Like, why would he need that? Uh, because he wasn't the firstborn. He actually had an older brother who vanished off the scene. He just disappears <laughs> from Egyptian records. Uh, you know, most Egyptologists would say he, he died of something. We don't know what it is. Uh, but then the next in line, of course, yet he wasn't supposed to be the king. So he needs some kind of divine blessing to make himself look more legitimate okay. in the eyes of the Egyptians. Wow. And of course, if his brother, his oldest brother, died in the plagues, well, that fits the story too. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. And this and this um, Sphinx dream, Stelle, is in between the paws of the great Sphinx, right? It's not like hanging yeah. off somewhere. It's it's right. prominent. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, really, it's really cool looking artifact. That is amazing, man. And so, yeah, so again, if his brother died in a plague of the firstborn, it fits the Exodus narrative as well. Man, that is, <laughs> that is fascinating. All right, so we believe, let's just, let's just make sure everyone's understanding. There were Hebrews in Egypt prior to 1446. About the time of 1446, right. Amenhotep II is ruling. He begins to overcompensate and say he can do all these things, especially with Canaan slaves, which nobody believes he actually did. And then his son tries to legitimize his kingship with a huge dream stele in the middle of the Sphinx, saying that he had a dream. The Sphinx, the god of the Sphinx came to him and told him he was going to be the next pharaoh. And it's because his older brother actually died. Right. What, yeah, what so do you, okay, because I've heard, I've heard you speak on this stuff. And the question that always comes to my mind is, what do secular archaeologists or, or non-Bible believing archaeologists, what do they think when this kind of data is, is shown and how it fits really well with the biblical narrative? Uh, generally, the archaeologists and Egyptologists who would be skeptical against the Bible as a historical document wouldn't even look into this, wouldn't even address it, wouldn't respond to it in any kind of official capacity they they just say like we are we already know that it didn't happen it's a closed case it's a dead issue there's no evidence so they're they're not going to get into a debate with this okay and i suppose if you talk to somebody who is willing to discuss then they would come up with some explanations like i mean these are good coincidences but 
is not solid enough evidence or something like that. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, what do we have? So, so there's evidence of them being in Egypt. There's evidence of the Exodus time period. Um, what do we have about like the wandering years? Um, because typically I, I would think that, um, Nomads don't really leave a lot of traces of, of wandering. I've right. seen some stuff about people right. leaving like tent holes in rocks and stuff like that, but there's yeah. typically not a ton of archaeological evidence that wandering peoples leave. Yeah, and that is a huge difficulty actually in trying to establish some kind of historical archaeological evidence for the wandering period. Okay. And okay. yet, what has been found is extremely important and, and solid. The main piece of evidence we have comes from an Egyptian temple in what is today northern Sudan, but at that time it was of Egypt. So this was a temple built for Amenhotep III. He is the grandson of the Exodus Pharaoh Amenhotep II, and he is the one who was ruling at the end of the wandering period and then into the conquest period. So on this temple, he does what a lot of pharaohs did and they inscribed a list of people that either he had supposedly conquered or they were just subjugated, they were under his control. And so he lists a lot of different places and many of the places we know from other documents, including the Bible. And then he also lists a bunch of different people and, and some people do this are nomads, they're wanderers, and he associates them with a place or a leader or a god. Okay. And one yeah. of these is the nomads of Yahweh, or the land of the nomads of Yahweh. Mm. And so it's these nomads, these wanderers, whose god is Yahweh, who worship Yahweh. And contextually, they are placed in the east, east of Egypt, kind of in between Egypt and Canaan, uh, Edom, Moab sort of area. So right about where we would expect during that wandering period. And it's on an Egyptian monument of a pharaoh. So we know that the Egyptians at that time knew who Yahweh was. And obviously they had some kind of familiarity with these early Israelites and knew that they were wandering at the time. That's sort of, there's the fill in the blank evidence for, is there anything connected to the wandering period? Yeah, well, that is just, that's mind-blowing. And you actually have been to this temple yourself, right? This isn't hearsay. Like, you're the real deal. You've gone there and seen this in Scripture. Right. There was an excavation done at this temple, but, I mean, their focus was not this Yahweh inscription. They were just digging up the whole temple and documenting as much as they could. But in so doing, uh, they couldn't go into all the details and so there are real photographs of this Yahweh inscription. They just mentioned in passing the, the drawing that was actually slightly inaccurate. And then um, several other references mention it in, in books and articles over the last 60, 70 years, I guess. And, uh, and they, they can't really add any information to it because there is no other information. So I went there to to document it, to photograph it, to analyze. Uh, actually, there's two inscriptions that I mentioned no mm -hmm. And to publish a, a technical article on that so that we had a little bit more information up to date and some higher resolution photographs so people can really see what this looks like and, yeah. and know how it connects to the early Israelites. 
Man, that is awesome. I mean, what a find, right? Like what a, what a yeah, cool no piece kidding. to help us say, hey, they were wandering at that time. And there must have been like a significant group of people for the Egyptians to record something like that, right? It's not like a small little tribe of nobodies. Yeah. This had to be a significant group at the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's something else that we see very clearly on the Stele, which comes less than two centuries later in okay. the late 13th century BC, where Pharaoh Merneptah mentions the Israelites as the, the most prominent group of people in Canaan. Actually, it's the only group of people that he mentions in Canaan. So yeah, the, the Egyptians knew who the Israelites were, and they, they mentioned them multiple times over the course of uh, centuries. That is fascinating. So uh, basically, we're not believing in fairy tales when it comes to the book of Exodus, <laughs> but we have historical proof through archaeology that things mentioned in scripture probably happened. I mean, did happen. Names, God's name. How many inscriptions of the name Yahweh are there in archaeology? Like how far back do those go? Uh, the Nomads of Yahweh inscription from Sudan is actually the earliest one that's ever been discovered. Wow. Which you know, lines up with what we see biblically because according to Exodus, that name was revealed to Moses mm -hmm. in the 15th century BC. And, you know, you fast forward like four or so decades later, four or five decades later, and then it's this inscription on the temple. Yeah. Okay. And then, then you got to fast forward quite a bit to the Mesha Stele, or, or also known as the Moabite stone from the ninth century BC okay. that mentions yeah. Yahweh. And that's the first uh, Semitic language inscription mentioning Yahweh. So there, there aren't a lot of them in these very early periods. So whenever you see it, it's very significant. Yeah, that's huge, wow. man. So you've literally taken a picture of the earliest known inscription of the name Yahweh. Yeah, I did. Many <laughs> actually, we needed more than one. So, dude, that's awesome, man. What a fun, fun thing to be able to do. How? Wow, that just gives yeah. me chills. Like thinking about it, that is awesome. All right, so now we're kind of moving into your expertise, right? The conquest of Canaan. Like, is there evidence that Joshua actually crossed the Jordan River and started to, to take over uh, Canaanite cities? I think that there is a lot of really solid evidence for the conquest under Joshua, although this is something, of course, that's highly debated. Okay. Now we have a few very key sites in this whole argument, and those we pull from what the book of Joshua talks about in terms of what was destroyed by fire, and then the the fourth one would be what was destroyed. So first of all, you have Jericho, right? Everybody knows that story. Walls fell down, the city was burned. Then we have Ai, so that, that was also burned, we, we are told. And then you have Hatsor in the north, which was the biggest city in Canaan, most powerful. And that was also burned. Okay, so those three major cities, we do have some other important ones, but those are the three major focus usually. But then the fourth that doesn't get paid attention to so much, but is actually very, very important, I think, is Shechem, because it's not attacked, it's not destroyed, but the Israelites do gain control of it. And we see them there in both Joshua 8 and Joshua 24, but they're there peacefully. They're with the locals, the natives, and they're reading the law. 
And so something happened, but the book of Joshua doesn't tell us how they got it. So I would say those four are really key cities to look at archaeologically. Okay. And when we look at those, those cities, what, what are the finds that back up what the Bible says? So Jericho is usually the one that people go to the most because it's so famous, uh, but it's also one that kind of became a test case for is the conquest historical and supported by archaeology or not? And okay. at first, archaeologists were saying yes, and then they were saying no, and they've been saying no for a while. But what, what we can say from the archaeology is that the discoveries there really fit the pattern that we see from the Joshua narrative. That is, there's a wall, it falls down on itself. It doesn't go back into the city, like from a battering ram. So they explain it as an earthquake. And then there's a fire that burns the whole city. The city is not looted. The, there are these big, huge storage jars of grain found in multiple locations. So the attackers didn't loot the city. They just destroyed it all. All right. And then it lies abandoned for a long period of time. So all that stuff fits the biblical narrative. The Jericho issue then became over. When did this happen? The chronology. Okay. So initially, when uh, an archaeologist named John Garstang was excavating Jericho, he said, oh, what I'm finding here with the pottery, with the royal scarab seals, this lines up with an approximately 1400 BC date of destruction. And so he thought that it, it fit the Joshua narrative and the biblical narrative. And by the way, he was agnostic. He was not a Christian. He, okay. Okay. he didn't really have a spiritual connection to that. He just thought that the Bible was something that was useful uh, historically and, and the archaeology was showing that. But one of his students came along and this is Kathleen Kenyon. And then she said that, oh, no, actually, it was destroyed in about 1550 B.C. So too early. OK. So the Israelites just made this story up. Well, fast forward in time to the Italian-Palestinian excavation, and they kind of lowered the, the date a little bit to 1500 BC, changed some stuff that Kenya was saying. So there's, there's lots of back and forth. But what we can say from the archaeological material there is that there's a specific type of pottery that's found in Jericho called um, whiteware. Okay. And this is something that really dates to the 15 to 1400 BC range in Canaan. And then we have this sequence of scarab seals, royal scarab seals. And the latest one is Amenhotep III. That's the oh. same guy with the nomads of Yahweh inscription. The dates for his reign encompass the conquest under Joshua. And so he's the last that we would expect to be found there if the city fell while he was in power. Wow. And actually, that's the case that we see at a number of sites in Canaan, that there's a destruction and abandonment, and the last pharaoh that's attested by some kind of inscription, like scarab seal, is Amenhotep III. Wow, that's um, interesting. So that seems yeah. like the last date where his scarabs were getting into, into the Canaan area. Right, exactly. Wow, okay. Then I is, I is the second one, okay? Well, there's a clear fire destruction layer over the, the final Bronze Age city there, and then it's abandoned for a long, long time. The debate there, again, is like, who destroyed it and when was that time? So um, archaeologists were saying for many years, because of the early excavations there, 
that it was destroyed in the early Bronze Age and then was abandoned for a long time. But we, we actually do have some evidence from, from previous excavations and very recently that it could have been destroyed also around 1400 BC. Okay. Um, more, more forthcoming on that, I think, in future uh, months and years. But nice. then we go up to Hathor. Hathor is not so debated. There's actually two destruction layers there. And we could look at the accounts of Joshua and Judges and say the first one's Joshua, the second one's Deborah and Barak. Mm -hmm. And the first one is about 1400 BC, total fire destruction of the city. That fits quite well. All right, so we actually do have, as I was saying, some, some pretty solid evidence for the destruction of these three cities by fire. Yeah. Then we get to the fourth one that I like to talk about to include in this, lest, lest we forget Shechem. Okay. And Shechem doesn't have a destruction layer anywhere near the conquest, and, and we wouldn't expect it to because it's not on the list of conquered and destroyed cities, but as I said, the Israelites are there. They're there peacefully, even with the natives. So what happened? In the Amarna letters, it talks about how the ruler of Shechem allegedly gave the land of Shechem to the Habiru or the Apiru. So the other Canaanite kings are accusing him to the Pharaoh as giving away Shechem to these foreign, these invaders that have come in, who I think we can identify this group in that in that case with Israelites because it's around 1400 BC. The situation, so it seems like this king just gave his city state to the Israelites rather than fighting them. And there may have been some previous treaty or at least a friend or familial relationship because if you remember, uh, Jacob actually lived outside of Shechem and dug some wells there. That's right. right. So they were they were there before they left for Egypt. So it's not like they didn't know anybody from yeah. Shechem. And that's fascinating. And the Amarna, Amarna is that how you say it? the Amarna letters? Yeah. They are so they're they're Canaanite king correspondents to Egypt, right? Like that's what they are. And there's like a whole bunch of them. Yeah, there we know of 382. There were a lot more, but that's what we have right now. Okay. And around 150 of those are from Canaanite kings to the Egyptian pharaoh that that we could uh, connect to this sort of general Joshua time frame. That's wow. fascinating, yeah. man. And so those talk Shechem specifically, so they're accusing him of just handing over the keys to the city, basically, um, yeah. possibly because he didn't want to get burnt like everyone else, or possibly because they were yeah. friends and they had some relationship. Yeah, totally. And we don't know exactly why, but I think both are really viable options. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's a really great piece of evidence, right? It's a huge and once again, it correlates perfectly with what the Bible says happened in those cities. Man, that is awesome. Um, and another thing, so it was interesting to me too, you saying that like um, evidence of certain pharaohs just kind of disappears. And that would be because for a while, the, the, um, the Israelites were pretty good at obeying what God had said about getting rid of the uh, pagan worship and everything, but also not going back to Egypt and not having trade with Egypt, right? And so is that kind of why we see, why you think we see a separation from Canaan and Egypt? Yeah, because a new group of people had come into the land, the Israelites, and they were not friendly with Egypt, but also Egypt lost 
most of their influence in Canaan okay. at, the, at that okay. time too. Okay, so if, if we say their army suffered a great loss in the sea, mm -hmm. that's one factor, right? And actually, if, if that's something interesting to look at. That after the beginning of the reign of Amenhotep II, we really don't have a major military campaign by the Egyptians until about a hundred years later. Oh man! So something, something was going on there. Yeah, but something happened to the Canaan. army, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. We look at Canaan; like they don't send any troops to Canaan in the in the Amarna letters when all those Canaanite kings are asking the Pharaoh to send troops. He never does, huh. and the yeah the egyptian influence is is lost in most places they did they did retain some power and influence in a few areas but those are those are the areas where the israelites didn't initially conquer and uh, take over man that is unbelievable <laughs> like i mean i believe it because you've studied it you've looked into it but it's just it's like it gives you chills like discovering these new truths right so, like, in all of your years of, I mean, going to school, studying this, um, it sounds like you're pretty settled on the Bible's legitimate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> As I look into it more and more every year, I, I just become aware of more and more evidence and things that line up. And, and sure, some of it is what we call circumstantial evidence. But then there's so much of it, too, that is just very blatant and one-to-one -one. so the case just keeps building and if you follow the archaeological discoveries year by year what we see is that typically each year something at least is found that connects to the bible so new stuff is coming up all the time yeah and then uh, i mean like you said it yourself too with all this circumstantial evidence that you're saying though like isn't there a certain point where it's like there's so much circumstantial evidence around a specific time period that it becomes like blatant like okay maybe it's not circumstantial it might you know what i mean like like is there a certain point where you could look at it and you'd be like mathematically it just doesn't make sense for this to be all coincidental right there's yeah. too much of it you know the the probability the odds of that are too great for it to just be mere coincidence. Right, yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, that's awesome. I think that's a good point too. Like for, for Christians out there, we talk to a lot of people who have doubts about their faith and, and everybody has doubts, right? We all go through times of, and periods of doubt and to be human is to doubt at times. But I, I always encourage people that if you have doubts, go, go find the answer because you can dig deep and into scripture or into archaeology or into philosophy and God wants to show you that he is real. If you go and you seek him, he's not far from any of us, like Paul said. And so I think that that is just awesome. And I'm thankful for guys like you who are literally digging up the past. And <laughs> you are establishing that, that the Bible is accurate in the, in the history that it depicts. It's an encouragement to me. And, um, if you want yeah. to really be encouraged, uh, listeners, go and buy uh, Dr. Titus Kennedy's book. It's right here. It's called Unearthing the Bible, 101 Archaeological Discoveries that Bring the Bible to Life. He's there got it go. there. I got it here. It is an awesome book because um, I've read some other archaeology books, and they're kind of dry sometimes. <laughs> this is awesome because you get two, maybe three pages of, of content, and you get a picture of the actual artifact and then he shows you in scripture why it's important and then explains to you what it is and 
you could read one of them and, you know, it'd take you two minutes to read about an artifact, but you'll find yourself reading about 20 or 30 of them in a row because <laughs> it is just fascinating. So uh, there'll be links in the show notes to this book, but you definitely need to go and you need to buy this book. Titus, uh, how can people, other than buying your book, how can they follow you? How can they keep up to date with the great work that you're doing? You can go to biblical-archaeology.com and I, uh, it's a kind of under construction, but I'm adding content to there. Occasionally, uh, you can also sign up for a newsletter through the website and that keeps people up to date on projects that I'm working on, like different excavations, different surveys and so forth. Okay. So okay. That, that'd be the main way really. Um, and hopefully coming out with another book in nice. the near future that focuses on locations rather than artifacts okay. and continue to, to work on digging up some of these cities of the Bible. So we'll, we'll see what's next. That's awesome. That's man. Great. Well, once you have your new book out, we'll, we would definitely love to have you back. This stuff is just fascinating. And honestly, a lot, a lot of people don't know about it. Right. It's kind of like a hidden. I mean, people know about the Indiana Jones movies, but they don't know about real archaeology. yet. So it's kind of cool to be able to dig into this. So, hey, man, thanks so much for being with us today on Christ Culture and Coffee. And we hope that's been an encouragement to you, our listeners, our viewers, that um, we can establish that the history of the Bible is accurate through archaeology. And we can see how the things that it says actually happen. So hope you've been encouraged. Please go follow Titus. Uh, on his on his website, grab the book and just continue to dig into these questions. Well, thank you so much for being with us today on Christ Culture and Coffee, and we'll catch you guys next week. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Christ Culture and Coffee. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to help us reach more people.